few weeks ago, we uh, started into a series on money and finance that uh, I'm calling God's bailout package, uh, you know, in keeping with the times. So um, as a part of that, we began looking, first of all, at the Old Testament passage where Moses describes for the people of Israel a choice that they and every one of us have to make a choice between a life full of blessing, success and joy or a life full of curses, failure and sadness. And here's what uh, Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 30, 15, and 18. Now listen, today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply And the Lord your God will bless you and the land you are about to enter and occupy. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen, and if you are drawn away to serve and worship other gods, then I warn you now that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live a long, good life in the land you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. Every one of us have been given that same opportunity to choose what kind of life that we're going to experience. We can choose to love God, making him first in our lives, following him as our leader and guide, and learning to walk according to his ways. Or we can choose to love ourselves, other things, making ourselves or other things first before him, choosing to be our own leader and guide, And then walking according to what we think is best. Moses says, however, that the outcome of choosing God in his ways will be blessing, success, joy and eternal life. But the outcome of choosing any other course is cursing, failure, sadness and eternal destruction. As a result of of prayer and God's leading, we're taking time as a church to learn more about God's ways as it pertains to this arena of finance and money. I mentioned at the the first week that we've all heard sermons on tithing and giving. But I believe that uh, there is much, much more that we can learn about God's ways related to finance. And that's where we have been going. The last couple of weeks, we were particularly considering the topic of the nature of the spirit of mammon. Jesus in Matthew 6.24 said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one. And despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammonus. And I've mentioned uh, in both weeks that the word mammonus is translated in most English Bibles as either money or wealth. But I have presented what I believe Jesus was saying, that he was not referring to money, but rather to an entity or a spirit that exists in the heavenly realms that influences the hearts of humankind to love and serve money in the physical realm. If you haven't been with us uh, I would encourage you to go to the website, our, our www.vineyardsa.org, and uh, Benjamin, I know, is working hard to make sure that we have those uh, current and up-to-date. This week, I want to talk about two competing economic systems prior to finishing the material on the spirit of mammon. Uh, I felt it was important to, uh, to kind of step sideways and cover this material and then uh, to finish out that uh, material on the spirit of mammon next week. But before we do that, I'd like to pray. Papa, I thank you that um, you have given us a choice. 
that it is not your heart's desire for us to experience destruction. We as earthly parents long for the good of our children. The McKays for Blake and Bethany's parents for her. And so in a similar way, Lord, you long for us to experience blessing, success, joy. But we're faced every day of our lives with the choice. We're pressed on every side by our culture, our society, by by demonic hosts and powers to miss the mark, to fall short, and to experience the pain, the disappointments, and the failures that go with those kinds of choices. And particularly, Lord, in in this material, as we're looking at this topic of finance, I, I am so stirred to think that we as Christians are supposed to be the leaders in this area. We're to be the leaders of our society, not society leading us. You called us to be masters over money, not money masters over us. So I pray that as we uh, take this time, as we uh, dig a little deeper perhaps uh, than we have in the past, that you would help us to hear your voice, to understand, to grasp. Father, I pray that you'd give uh, uh, give me uh, words to say that uh, will build and encourage and stir us to choose life. I pray your Holy Spirit would take that which uh, misses the mark even in my presentation and to allow us to hear your heart. Come, Holy Spirit, be with us today in Jesus' name. The Bible is um, very clear that there are two separate and independent realms or kingdoms that exist as competing realms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. As a part of these kingdoms or realms, there also exist two totally separate and independent economic systems that compete for the hearts and minds of humankind. The world's economic system operates under the power and ways of Satan and operates on the basis of buying and selling. The contrasting economic system operates under the power and ways of God and operates on the basis of receiving and giving. Those who choose to love God, to live according to his ways, and to operate according to his kingdom principles have to do that while living in the world and around this competing and powerful influence of Satan, his minions, his ways, and his principles. Jesus demonstrated and frequently taught about living in the world but not being of it. Though for sure a difficult task, I believe it is not an impossible one or he wouldn't have instructed us to do so. So to do that, to live in the world but not of it, we must understand the differences between the world's economic system of buying and selling and God's economic system of receiving and giving. While it's not wrong for Christians to buy and sell, we have to recognize that it is an involvement in the world's system rather than God's. And we always need to look for ways to enter into God's ways of giving and receiving. 
Jesus, while living his life free from entanglement in the world systems, was ultimately sold for 30 pieces of silver. And as a result, he was bought and brought under the world's economic system. Jesus, however, made it very clear in John chapter 10 that his life was not taken from him, but rather that he gave himself freely. That he laid down his life of his own accord for you and I, that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. Even in the midst of being bought, Jesus did not submit to the economic systems of the world, but he gave himself willingly and freely. To show the contrast between these two economic systems, I want to look at a variety of stories uh, in the Bible, primarily from the New Testament, but a few references to the Old. I want to look first at the story from the life of Jesus told by Matthew, Luke, uh, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark 10, 17. John was, uh, John was out there. He told all kinds of other stories than these three guys. I guess he was uh, close or something. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. About 10 days before Jesus was to be crucified, he began his final journey to Jerusalem. And there's quite a few stories that are told in that period of time, of course, leading up to the um, the entrance into Jerusalem um, on Palm Sunday and then, of course, uh, the rest of uh, the Passion Week. This being now about 10 days before that, Jesus had been staying in a town. And Mark tells us that Jesus leaving town, a man came running up to him, knelt before him. And asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. Hmm. But to answer your question, Jesus says, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I have obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. Looking intently at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you own and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away very sad, for he owned much property. Let me share with you a few things that stand out to me from this story. I have a sense that this man had been watching and listening to Jesus for many days. Jesus has been hanging out in his town. Jesus went to Jerusalem quite a few times in his life, probably traveling through that town on numerous times. We're not told what town it is. Might well have been the town where Mary and Martha lived and Lazarus. We don't know. This man may have heard Jesus teach. 
He may have seen or heard about the miracles, maybe even had a friend. And as he sees Jesus go, something stirs in his heart to chase after him and say, I I think you know the way. And he says, how can I gain eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I believe that this man was in great earnest. That he was not just a religious leader trying to trick Jesus, but is at this moment recognizing and dealing with his own heart and wanting to know the truth. We're told that the man owns much property. I suspect that he had acquired some of that property through inheritance. That was the norm. But he also probably was an entrepreneur and had bought and sold much to add to his property and possessions. I believe that his response to Jesus' words from the Ten Commandments were genuine. I believe that the man probably had truly fulfilled and obeyed those commands all his life. I believe also that Jesus was given prophetic insight into this man and saw this man's earnestness, his genuine desire to please God, but he also saw the primary issue in his life that was hindering him from fully following God in his ways. And that was his wealth. I believe that Jesus understood all of that in a moment and yet was moved with love and compassion for the man. Even though Jesus could see the problem in his life. I believe that Jesus genuinely desired and wanted this man to respond, to repent, to turn, and to follow him. And let me say this to each one of you here as well and to myself. Like this man, I believe that each one of us is very sincere in our pursuit of God. I believe that God deeply loves each and every one of us. And it is that love that speaks to the places in our lives that are not yet under his control and influence. And he is wanting to ask us, like he did this man, to give them up, to let go to repent, to turn, and to follow him wholeheartedly. How many of you have noticed before that Jesus only quotes half the Ten Commandments here? Which half? The second half, which is about what? Other people, our relationships. What half did he leave out? Relating to God. Worshiping God. The issues of idolatry. Though heartfully sincere, there was something in this man's life that had priority above God. There was something else that was demanding first in his life, and that was his properties and possessions. Something other than God was his master, controlling and influencing his life. And he turns away. Now, we don't know the end of the story at all. He may have followed Jesus to Jerusalem. He may have heard the story of his resurrection. We don't know. But the scriptures end there on that man's story. But Jesus goes on. Mark goes on in the story to tell us this. Then Jesus, I suspect, sad, moved with love and compassion for this man, watching him walk away, that Jesus turned 
and said to his disciples how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were greatly astounded and they said to one another, then then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and he said, for mortals, it is impossible. But not for God. For God, all things are possible. Please note here in this that Jesus does not say how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter heaven. Though that is what most of us hear, and I think what his disciples heard. What Jesus said was how hard it is for those who have wealth who are connected, tied into this world's economic systems, how hard it is for them to operate in God's economic systems within his kingdom and realm. People with lots of wealth, property, and possessions very often, not all, but very often place their trust in those things. As many of us put our trust in a variety of things. But that's a fairly easy one to fall down the path of. Follow down the path of. The reason the man in the story left sad and grieving because he could not imagine giving up all that he depended upon to trust God alone. And how often do we face that same challenge? Whether it be with the life of a loved one our health, our finances. Remember Jesus' words from Matthew 6.24 that we read earlier. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammonous. This story is about two kingdoms and their competing economic systems. The world's based on buying and selling, taking and clutching and God's based on giving and receiving. In response to Jesus's words about the difficulty of those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, Peter, I suspect looking at the man walking away and then at the disciples standing around Jesus and then to Jesus, he says, Teacher, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are thought of to be first, those who are wealthy, will be last. And those who are thought of to be last 
those without economic resources, will be first. Wow. How comforting might that have felt to Peter and the disciples? They had left everything. Most of them had left paying jobs and thriving businesses. Many of them had left their parents' homes or business to follow Jesus. And all of them were spending more time with Jesus than they were with their wives and children. It was the norm for Jewish men to be married, to have children. Now, I want you to notice something here with me. Jesus says that if we give up houses, lands, and relationships, he promises that we will receive a hundredfold in this life houses, lands, and relationships. And in the age to come, eternal life. So he, he does expand the story from the competing economic systems to the involvement of choices related to that and eternal life. But more specifically, notice that he does not mention money. He does not say, give up all your money, release all your money, and you will receive a hundredfold. Because the Bible teaches about money very differently than it teaches about houses, lands, and relationships. Now, I'm going to go into that, but I am led for a moment to allow us a time for some personal reflection, a personal exercise. I think this story uh, has the potential to stir us to consider our own lives. I believe that it is appropriate as we hear the word of God to respond to it, not simply just go, "Uh uh-huh. And so as a personal exercise, I'm just going to invite you to take a couple of minutes on your own to reflect and to consider, are there areas of our lives that are not fully under God's control and influence? I want us to consider various aspects of our lives and then to allow God to have access to point out areas that he would like to address. I'd like you to consider the area of your relationships, which would, of course, include your family close and distant, your friendships, your co-workers, your neighbors. I'd like you as well to consider your time and involvements. That can include your work, your school, your hobbies, what you do for entertainment, your computer and toys. I'd like you to consider your finances, which should be related to your spending, your giving, your investments to debt. And I'd like you to consider your emotional being. Are you bothered by hurts, fears, anger? What's your general disposition towards others? How are you dealing with other people and their faults? And then finally, I want to ask ask you to ask God if there's anything he wants to tell you. Is there anything that he wants to point out to you about areas of your life that might be hindering your relationship with him and others? So that we're actually relating to God in response to his word. That's what faith is. It's taking action on something God has said. So we're just going to pause. I'm going to go sit down over here and do it myself. 
And I would just welcome you. We're going to take just a couple minutes to do this. Please pause audio to perform exercise. Papa, I'm so thankful that when you look at us intently and you see into our hearts and minds, you look into the secret hidden places that others don't see, that you are moved with love and compassion. That you are not moved with wrath and condemnation. And I welcome your cleansing from iniquity, your forgiveness of our sins. That you would make us into brand new people. who are not bound by shackles of this world's systems, but who walk as free men and women, loving and serving you, caring for the needy, giving to those who have need. That's our heart's desire. It's yours as well. Let which is in your will be done here on this earth in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to um, spend the rest of this time talking about the distinctions between wealth, riches, and money. Most people think wealth, riches, and money as interchangeable terms for the same thing, and we often in our culture and society use them that way. Uh, we, when we say a person is wealthy or rich, we predominantly mean that they have a lot of money. However, when we study the words in the Bible, we find that they are descriptive of different things and are governed by different things. So let's first look at wealth. What is wealth? Wealth in the Hebrew language is defined as possessions, particularly in the sense of resources, substance, or commodity. In looking at the Old Testament, we find examples of wealthy people, and their wealth was in the form of land, houses, cattle, and flocks, Gold, silver, jewelry, timber, oil, and people in the form of maid and men servants. In our day, perhaps paralleling employees. Genesis 13.2 says, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And the word rich there is not rich. It means heavy or weighted and means that he was heavy with livestock, weighty with silver and gold, meaning he had lots of it. 
But it doesn't use the word rich, though it's there in the English language. In Joshua 22.8, Joshua describes wealth that had been taken from their enemies as booty that God had allowed for them to have. And he says to them, go back to your homes with the great wealth that you have taken from your enemies, the vast herds of livestock, the silver, gold, bronze and iron, and the large supply of clothing. Share the plunder with your relatives. In that day and age, clothing was a commodity. It wasn't like us that, you know, we change our clothes every, you know, twice a day or, you know, we have 18, you know, shirts and 20 pairs of pants. No, they had few items of clothing and they were often significantly more well-made than the products of our day. And so they had... They had value, as did these other items. Second Chronicles 1 describes Solomon's encounter with God in a dream. In the dream, Solomon was asked by God what he wanted from God. To which Solomon responded, give me wisdom and knowledge to rule this people. Now, God was kind of impressed. And he said to Solomon, because you have not asked for wealth, possessions, honor, glory, or long life, I'm going to give you wisdom and knowledge and those things. And then the next couple of verses describe part of that wealth of Solomon that came to him as chariots, horses, cities, timber, silver, and gold. Nowhere in any of these accounts is there the use of a word that would reflect money. So I would suggest that there is a distinction between wealth and money that's important for us to make and recognize, and we'll continue down that path. Wealth, that is sometimes translated riches, is always something tangible and itself has worth or value. When, while silver and gold have been used at times, wealth is not normally used as a median of exchange for the purpose of buying and selling. Let me say that again. Typically, throughout history, wealth has not been used as a median of exchange for the purpose of buying and selling. It's the result or the outcome of buying and selling. So what is money? Money has very different characteristics than wealth, both in our day and in the past. As viewed in our day, money is a medium of exchange for which a person may trade goods and services. Money is what we receive for our work or production and service which we then use to obtain the production and services of others. I go to work. I get a paycheck. It goes into my bank account. I go shop. And my wife goes shopping and buys groceries. I fix the car, put gas in it. It's just a median of exchange. There's no wealth in that. It's just a transaction of moving value around, but nothing's behind it. Once upon a time, 
there was enough gold in Fort Knox to cover the, the value of our paper out there, right? Anybody have any? I mean, I had an economics class. Daniel's not here, nor is Matt. Anybody know when that stopped being the case? No, it was not a long time ago. It was like World War I think depression, it was in the 1900s. You know, again, from 1700s through the 1800s up until the middle of the 1900s, there really was gold backing our money. That is long gone, folks. While wealth is something of substance and value, money has no intrinsic value, but its value is determined on the daily basis by markets. And the market is nothing more than the opinions of people. In other words, money is worth whatever people say it is. Just watch it on this. Don't, I, I, I was for quite a while there around the uh, time of the uh, kind of the crisis, the financial crisis, and then the um, presidential elections and all that. I was listening to uh, the news a lot uh, during that period of time. And, and one of the pieces we're always told is what's, what's the value of the dollar and what's the value of the yen and the value of the mark and whatever. No, we don't usually talk about the value of the peso. <laughs> the euro, though, does. Isn't that interesting? On one level, it's worth nothing. On the other, it does have value and worth for trading, for buying and selling. I've suggested in previous weeks that in and of itself, money is impotent. It has no power. It also does not carry any intrinsic morality. It rather is an amoral commodity. It is neither virtuous nor evil. It is a piece of paper. It is a coin. It is an object. But behind that object, I have suggested in previous works, weeks, is an entity, a power in the heavenly realms that is using that item for its purposes to draw us away from God to this object and to worship of this entity. Money traditionally has been made from metal and paper into coins and notes and predominantly are imprinted with the image of an important man or woman. You ever thought about that? All money has an image of a human being on them. Now they may have the, you know, on the other side, they'll have a tree or an animal or something. They're also always imprinted with words. But that issue of a human being's image on there is significant. All, almost all money has that. You know what money didn't have an image? Anyone? Jewish money. The shekel. We're going to talk about the shekel a little bit. And I'm going to show you picture. In fact, that was the 30 pieces of silver dropping earlier. Did they drop? Did you all see 30 pieces of silver? Okay. Those, those are a shekel. Today, of course, we also use checks, debit cards instead of cash uh, that allow us to have money in a bank for which we draw funds rather than actually carrying around the cash. Another characteristic of money is that it's divisible comes in varying denominations so that you can more easily buy and sell. 
I know that when we've gone to other countries, you know, and you, and you, you change your money and you want to, and then you're there and you don't have the little change to do this or that, so you give them some of the American money for that, and who knows what happens in the transaction with that. But anyway, it is divisible. Um, every country uh, has money. It comes in various denominations. Money also is durable to a degree. It does wear out. Um, coins and paper bills last a while. Obviously, coins longer than, than paper, but even the paper bills is stronger than you know the paper that your program's written on, right? Another thing money is is transportable. It can be carried with you. It's a little hard to carry around houses, lands, and cattle. Even gold and silver can be a bit difficult to carry because of its weight and its value. Money has no value, sort of. Money also is easy to recognize. You can visit another country. You may not understand the values of what you're seeing, but you always recognize money when it's out. And, of course, we always recognize the credit cards. They all look the same. Another uh, element of money is that there is scarcity versus demand. There is a greater demand than money to satisfy the demand for it, and that is on purpose. It is regulated. It is controlled, the value, the amount of money that is in circulation, and governments do that in attempt to control its value. I think that's very significant. Now, what does the Bible have to say about money? I want to look first at Matthew 22. The religious leaders are once again trying to trap Jesus. Doggone it, we've got to get this guy to say something wrong so we can arrest him. So they ask him a question about paying taxes to Rome. Now, keep in mind the Jewish people are a dominated uh, country, What's the word for that? There's a word for that. They are uh, under control of another nation. And they have their own culture and monetary systems, but they are being controlled um, and taxed by this other nation, this other entity that has uh, taken charge over them. And so there's issues in the law, but more particularly in rabbinic tradition, about Paying taxes. So they're looking for Jesus here to kind of trip up, you know, to say, yeah, go ahead and give our money to see, you know, whatever. Anyway, this is what he does. So they they say, tell us what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And I had one, but I forgot to put it up. I'm sorry. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. While answering a question and giving instruction about taxes, Jesus is also saying something about the nature of money. The denarius coin, he says, belongs to Caesar. He says it does not belong to God. 
When people take a chunk of gold or silver, which has inherent value and is by nature wealth, and they melt it or mold it, they imprint an image of a person's face on it, and they dedicate it to be used for buying and selling, that chunk of gold has changed economic systems. It has changed from wealth to money. Wealth is given by God, the Bible says. It was created by God. It is a part of the blessing of God to his people. But nowhere does it say money is. Money is a part of the world's economic system for buying and selling, which contradicts giving and receiving. It is no longer under God's ownership as money because it belongs to the world system. In the last few weeks, we have talked about the word mammonus used four times in the New Testament and only by Jesus. And we also talked about that while it is translated by many as money or wealth, it was an ancient Aramaic word that I believe suggested a power or entity rather than money or wealth, uh, a, a god of finance, you might say, from the ancient times. And last week I allowed, allowed facilitated a, a time of question and answer, and someone had asked me, okay, if, if mammonus is not the normal word for money, what is? And I could not answer that. But I spent time this week looking at that, and it was quite uh, an informative study for me. Very, very interesting and supported even more uh, what I was advocating. So I did some uh, research, as I said, and I found that the most frequent word used for money in the Gospels, and also it is used in uh, Luke and then Pauline literatures, but, but in the Gospels particularly is the word argurion. And it really is the name for a silver coin, the shekel. So when they refer to that which is described as money, in their Jewish culture, in Jesus' stories and times where he's referring to money, he's referring to the Jewish shekel. Luke 9.3. Jesus is instructing his disciples before sending them out on a missionary journey. And he says to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. And the word money there is silver coin, shekel, a gurion. Now talk to me for a minute. Why did Jesus do that? What's the point of sending them out without any bags, without any stuff? So God can provide. Who is your source? One of our weeks, we're going to talk extensively about that. Who is our source? And Jesus wanted the disciples to not be involved or worry about the economic systems of buying and selling. And instead, he says, you go and God will take care of you. And he did. They came back cheering and shouting. Remember? 
Now, I suspect they were a little apprehensive here, but they'd watched. They'd been with Jesus. Jesus somehow had the sufficient resources. There were people who bought and provided God's hand through his people, just like he does today for many. But I believe this was a significant declaration of, as you go out to minister, do not worry. Do not become entangled in the world's economic systems. You need to be concerned about giving and receiving, not buying and selling. On a number of occasions, I found as I looked through these passages that translators are inserting the word money where it isn't present in the Greek. So you say, you know, you look up the word money in my tools, and I find all these verses that say money, and then I look, and it doesn't say money. It's not there. They believe it's implied, and so they insert it to try and help us understand. But I believe that that insertion complicates rather than clarifies. Let me give you an example. Matthew 26 eight and nine. And I could have done dozens and dozens of these, but I knew you wouldn't want to do that. So I just did a few of them. Um, Here, there's a woman who has come and anointed Jesus with expensive perfume. Um, In in one counter, it's very clear that it's Mary, uh, Martha's sister, Lazarus's sister. Uh, There's another case where it isn't so clear, but probably still is a story of her. And the disciples say, why this waste? This perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. The word money is not in there. The word money is not in the Greek. It simply says, why this waste? This perfume might have been sold for a high price and given to the poor. Converting wealth into a gift. And, and they did the same thing in the book of Acts. Um, and I don't have those references, but, but you know them. They're in Acts chapter 4, and then again, I think in 6 or 5 or 7 or somewhere in there where it talks about, and they sold properties, houses and lands, and gave. And then there was a problem in one of those cases with a, a couple who had the authority to sell their property But they came in with deception and a spirit of mammon gripping their hearts and they withheld some of it but said it was all that there was. And they were struck dead. God wanted to make a fairly significant declaration about deceiving the church related to money. I think that's what part of that is about. Now I I, um, share all these uh, okay, then there's also a number of passages that refer to specific kinds of coins. That also was very, very common. Uh, the minna is talked about. Uh, there's one called a calcus. That's a bronze or copper coin. Uh, the colobus, which means a small coin. The denarius uh, that we spoke of earlier had the face of, of uh, Caesar on it. So predominantly, when the word money is used, it is speaking of coinage. Uh, I don't believe there's, they had any paper money. They didn't have printing presses and all that. Uh, that came later. So money was in the form of coin. But they still had that image, and they were used simply as the tool for buying and selling. 
Now, I share all this to say that just that Jesus had a lot of alternatives in his choice of words when he said in Matthew 6:24 and Luke 6:16:13, you cannot serve God, you cannot serve both God and Mammonus. He, he could have used words for money. He did not. He had used those words for money in other texts and contexts. He could have said, you cannot serve both God and the shekel. But he doesn't. My thoughts. If Jesus had simply meant money, I think he would have used the common words of the day. But instead, he goes back to an ancient word that I believe it is, some would suggest, is tied to a, a God of finance. All right. Besides the time that Jesus is questioned by the religious leaders about paying taxes to Caesar, there is another account of Jesus paying a tax. And this is found in Matthew 17, verses 24 and 27. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, which is a, um, a beach town where uh, Jesus was connected there. He kind of grew up in Nazareth, and then Capernaum was, the, they had family there and stuff. It was a, that's probably where Peter and John were from. So very, very familiar. Jesus' disciples arrive in Capernaum, and the collectors of the two drachma tax, there's another word for a type of coin, the two drachma tax, came to Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Now, this is a Jewish tax for the temple. And it's, it is for the purpose of keeping the temple in shape, providing lighting and electricity and fuel and all that stuff. It is. That's, that's what the temple tax was. And everybody paid it. It's not the tithe. Peter says, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus pays that. I know he does, I'm sure. Jesus, do you pay that? <laughs> I'm not quite sure what was going on in Peter's mind here, but... You know, he's standing before the tax collector and does Jesus pay the tax? Yeah, I'm sure he does. Okay. So Peter comes to Jesus and before Peter says anything, Jesus has prophetic revelation, prophetic understanding of what just transpired. And he said, hey, Simon, what do you think? From whom do kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? Peter said, from others. Jesus then says, then the sons are exempt. But so that we may not offend them, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. The tax was two, a two drachma coin, but they happened to have a a larger denomination called a four drachma. And that's what was in the fish's mouth. And he says, take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, this is what I am speculating that Jesus is essentially saying here. Peter, as God's children, living under God's economic system, we are free from the taxes of this world's system, economic system. But so as not to offend, we will pay the tax. But we are not going to get it 
through the world system of buying and selling. Instead, God is our source and he is going to provide it to us. So again, here is this concept of they're they're operating in the world, but not of it. Jesus was sold for silver, but he gave his life freely. Here, the system is requiring them to pay. And Jesus says, no, we're not going to pay the tax. We're going to give them money. We're going to give them what they're asking for. Okay. I've never heard anyone teach on that material. Uh, that's new for me. So if we need to do work on it, we can do work on it. I would be welcome your input. I think we... Let's go fishing next weekend in the boat. Okay. We need to maintain a clear understanding that buying and selling is the world's economic system. We're involved in it, but we're not to operate in the same way that those in the world do. We need to operate within God's economic system of receiving and giving. Now, I'm going to um, wait. I'm, OK, I said that this week. I had an opportunity. Um, uh, we had some um, merchandise that I was going to sell on eBay. And um, had had been meaning to get to it, and and there was a, a friend who who uh, wanted to buy it, but he his price that he saw its value for, and what I was seeing its value for were quite different. And uh, so I had I had gone out to eBay and I'd done some research on this, and I printed the the page of paper that that shows the sold prices for that item. It's an electronic item, and. Um, I had printed it out, and I was, I was handwriting on it. You know, dear friend, uh, here's what I think they're worth. This is what I'll sell it to you for. And while I'm writing it out, I kind of look around me. I think I'm operating in somebody else's economic system right now. You know what? I think I'm going to violate the spirit of mammon. I'm going to defame it. I'm going to give this thing to him. And I did. The point there isn't the thing, the value of it. The point is the recognition that how often are we trapped, caught, thoughtful within the economic system of buying and selling and don't think about God's economic system of giving and receiving, receiving and giving. How hard it is for you to receive something? Anyone have difficulty receiving from people? I mean, predominantly we do as people. Getting over it? That's good. We need to get over it. Okay, I want to conclude by uh, with one more story. I, 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 again, some of these concepts and materials and ideas are new to me. I am Claire and I are working. In fact, Claire and I are leaving immediately after the service. And uh, we're, we're going out to Fredericksburg uh, to spend the night, and we're going for a working retreat to work on closing our circle, which we're going to talk to you guys about in a few weeks. And when we read that material, heard that material, I have it both in audio as well as in reading, Claire and I just said, yeah, we, that we've never done that, and we need to do that. 
We, we need to close the circle. We've done pretty good in operating in good stewardship. We've tithed. We've given you know, some, some really cool things. But there is an added piece that we're going to explain to you and share with you that I think can make the world of difference on which economic system we're operating in. So we're headed there. We've still got some work ahead of us. Uh, I hope you're finding this helpful. Last story I want to look at is from Matthew 21. It's also in Mark 11 and also John 2. This is where Jesus is entering the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and wreaks havoc. It's the uh, uh, casting, what is, what's it called? What's the general term? He's gonna, anyway, all right, here it is. Here's the story. Overturned the temple, the tables and all that. Yes, all right, Matthew 21. We'll read first out of Matthew 21, 12 and 13. Matthew and, and Mark are about the same. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. Not my words, they're the words from the text. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. John elaborates a little bit, tells the story a little differently from his perspective. And he says, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, a whip, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business, a marketplace. It could be translated. Now, you may remember that last week, one of the verses we looked at was Luke 16, 14 where the Jewish religious leaders, known as the Pharisees, were described by Luke as lovers of money. By the way, there is not the word money in there. (laughs) It's a name, lovers of, and it actually does incorporate argulion, the, the word for shekel. So lovers of the shekel is essentially what it's saying. Um, lovers of coins, money. Well, one of the ways and one of the places where they made their money, where they made a lot of money, was by having people changing money and selling animals in the temple. And here's the way it worked. Rather than allowing the people to bring in their own animals, the Old Testament, God was very clear about an animal without spot or blemish. But in the Old Testament, they're allowed to bring in their own livestock. In fact, that's what you're supposed to do. It's, it's, a, it's a tithe. It's, it's the first of the livestock. It's the first of your oil. It's the first of the new wine. It, it's, a, it's a commodity. The tithe is supposed to be commodity, not money. I think that's really crucial. I don't know exactly why, but I think it is. And I don't know how it works for us. But anyway, we'll, we'll, maybe God will help us and we'll get there. But anyway, so in the Old Testament, you brought your own animals. But 
what they said, they had written laws and rules and things and said, no, 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 you can't bring your own animals. You have to buy the animals from us because we're the only ones here that have the real pure animals. Homegrown, organically fed. No additives or what preservatives. But you can't buy them with your Greek and Roman money. You have to buy them with the shekels, the Jewish currency. So over here, please, everyone come over here and uh, bring your, your, uh, your Greek and Roman money and we'll change it. We'll give you a penny on the dollar. Then, then come over here and, and buy your lamb or your oxen or your goat or your dove and uh, we'll charge you 100% of what it, it's worth out in the market over there where they're getting them to eat. And they were ripping off the people. The people were coming to offer love to God, to fulfill his desire, to bring their tithe, to honor God. And they had turned it into a business instead of an opportunity for fulfilling the biblical command of the tithe. Not good. Jesus didn't like it. Now, I don't know how he got away with doing all that. There were temple police stationed all around there. Did they just freeze? Did he get rid of them too? This is an incredibly strong declaration and statement about money and buying and selling and God's view of it. Often. Buying and selling incorporates wanting to get the most for your item that you're going to sell on eBay. Right? Not, is there someone I know who needs this and I can give it to them? God is looking to throw out the world's economic system in the way we are drawn and driven by it to a whole new kind of system. Jesus, I believe, is very, very clear as to what our attitude towards money should be. Money is created by man and it is governed by a spirit of mammon It is a part of the world's economic system and the kingdom of Satan. And as such, neither we nor God are owners of it. We are merely managers or stewards of what is another's. And as a manager, God wants us to be masters of money, not money or mammon being our master. I hope that you'll hang with us over these next few weeks as we walk through these materials. What time is it, anyone? Okay, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I I, I was going to do it as a group exercise, um, but we've got communion of the kids. Um, And as a matter of fact, if Mercy, you could go up and, and get them to come down. I've got up here on the screen a group exercise, and I might encourage you to do this together with family members or you know, do it at the dinner table tonight after dinner or do it in your community group or whatever. But I, I want us to wrestle a little bit with this story 
of Jesus cleansing the temple. That's what it's called. Jesus cleansing the temple. And um, I want us to consider in what ways Christians, in what ways we compromise in the area of money, finance, and buying and selling. Not an easy question to, to wrestle through and perhaps very uncomfortable. We are in the world, not of it. We have to be a part of buying and selling, but we don't have to approach it the way the world does. We don't have to be manipulated by it. And I believe that as they did in the temple, become overwhelmed by a spirit of mammon, lovers of money, so we, even as Christians, have compromised in this arena. In the area of money, finance, buying, and selling. And I want you to consider, to pray about, to think about, talk with others about what are the ways. And the reason I want this as a group exercise instead of individuals is because I think we need some help. I think we need the group activity of stirring. What is, how can we approach this differently? What, could, what, what have we compromised? Where have we missed in our, in, our thoughtful, in our thoughts around and use of money, buying and selling? Where are we compromising, and, and how can that potentially be different? I don't have a lot of answers along there. Scripture is the only thing we've got, really, to help us. So that's your homework assignment. I really, really would encourage you to, to be, be wrestling with these things and thinking about and considering them. Let's pray for just a minute as they're still coming. Father, we... Um, really, really, really with all our hearts want to love and serve you. We really want you to be first. We don't want to have other gods. We don't want money mastering us. We don't want a spirit of mammon controlling us. Us as individuals or families or even as a church for sure. And so, um, oh God, I pray you'll teach us. You have ways, principles, understandings about finance that we have not heard or grasped And I I pray with all my heart that you would help us to be changed and transformed, to be able to live in reference to money like Jesus did, to be able to trust God as our source. I don't know how that works fully, God. I really don't. (laughs) don't know about how we can get money out of coins, out of fish's mouths, and what that could be. I wonder if Eve's got a coin in her mouth today. No. Lord, I don't know, but... I welcome you to teach us. Lord, we bend our ear. We, have, we want to have ears to hear what you're saying and eyes to see. And Lord, as we consider this question of how and where have we compromised in this arena of finance and buying and selling, I pray that you would bring revelation to us. I pray that you would speak, that you would point things out that we would be willing to hear. Melissa? Thank you, Father, for um, your love for us. And no matter where we are in all of these pieces, that you love us, that you have compassion for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we are gonna. This is a little unusual, um, but we're gonna continue in worship uh, by taking communion. Uh, in the last couple of months upstairs, we've been talking about Jesus. We talked about his parables, and then of course we uh, talked about Easter and how he died and rose from the dead. Um, we talked about uh, the Holy Spirit coming and empowering the disciples. Um, to spread the word and spread the gospel. Um, And recently we've been talking specifically about who the disciples were and then the Last Supper and talking about communion. Um, So upstairs this morning we talked a little bit about communion, and I know they talked a couple weeks too about communion. So this is an opportunity for the children to partake with us. Um, So it's it's um, a time where you would communicate with your child to see if they are... um, uh, believers and if they are ready to uh, take communion. I'm excited this morning because Darcy is going to be taking communion for the first time. Um, so I'm just going to have Danny um, read a couple of scriptures for us uh, uh, to remind us of what Jesus asked us to do. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. This, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took sup- after the supper he took, the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Um, as we're coming up to receive communion, um, we have JJ and Anna and uh, Danny are going to help me to pass it out. Um, I would like you to be in remembrance of what he's done for you, um, uh, specifically in your life. Um, so all of us, a lot, a lot of times when I take communion, I picture the cross and I picture um, the suffering that Jesus had to go through. Um, on the cross, but I want you to be in remembrance of what he's done for you personally. Um, Darcy, like I said, is taking communion for the first time, and her name has kind of an unusual meaning. It means from the dark, and I was a little perturbed by that when I, because I really liked the name when we named her, Um, but if you ask her now, she'll say, I came from the dark, and God brought me into a light place. Um, (laughs) So... Uh, I think we've, uh, I think that that's happened for all of us, right? Amen. We're living the good news. The good news is living in us and um, enabling us uh, to live a life for Christ. And so as you're coming forward, just be in remembrance of um, where he's come, where he's taken you from, the dark place he took you from, and into the light that he's brought you into. Um, so with that, if you would please come. Um, And let me pray, and then as you come forward and sit down, you can go ahead and partake in communion. So, Lord, we are just so grateful. That the cross is good news. It's not um, a lot of regulations to live by. It's ideas and wisdom to bring these dead bones to life. It's a sacrifice um, that covers all of the bad choices we've made. 
all of the selfishness that we um, have decided to follow our own ways. And the cross um, just covers that up and it helps us to choose Christ, to choose God, and to make him first. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just give us a clear remembrance of where you've brought us from. And, Lord, I pray for the children um, who are learning about this, that it would become real to them. name we pray.
Yesterday, uh, when I was having my uh, quiet time with the Lord, I just uh, felt impressed um, to uh, just speak something over the moms uh, today, all that are here. Um, so I'd, I'd like to do that now as a special prayer. But before I do that, um, I want uh, everyone to uh, just kind of take a look around where you're sitting. And uh, if there's a mom sitting next to you or behind you, in front of you, if you could just... Uh, uh, just pray a quick blessing over them, uh, just like 15 seconds, and I mean, nothing long, just a quick blessing. Um, and I want to emphasize, um, as the Lord d- did on me yesterday, that uh, he would like to bless the, the moms today, uh, those who have children, uh, but also the spiritual moms. He wanted to make sure that he didn't forget today. And those... And that's uh, any uh, young lady, any woman, any mom who who can be a spiritual mom. And that's anyone who has imparted and uh, uh, just given to another young lady or child uh, in their life. So I just want to make sure we get those moms as well. Um, So uh, as you give your blessing, turn and and, uh, give another blessing to uh, a spiritual mom here this morning. And I'll just give a a few minutes on that, and then I'll uh, close it with uh, um, a word uh, for them. So just take a couple couple seconds to do that. All right. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for uh, acknowledging mothers today, Lord, in the natural and in the spiritual, Lord. We just bless them today, Father God. Um, And if you would come in agreement with me as I um, read this uh, passage over all the moms here today, if we would all agree in prayer, that you would be filled with the full, deep, and clear knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, in comprehensive insight into the ways and purposes of God, and an understanding and discernment of spiritual things, that you may walk, live, and conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and desiring to please him in all things, bearing fruit in every good work and steadily growing and increasing in and by the knowledge of God with fuller, deeper, and clear insight, acquaintance, and recognition. I pray that you may be invigorated and strengthened with all power according to the might of his glory to exercise every kind of endurance and patience with much joy. In Jesus' name, amen. And we want every mom, every spiritual mom, or every physical mom to leave here with a rose. So if uh, children, if you want to come grab one for your mommy and give it to her, and a reminder of why you love her, um, uh, or you can just come forward, and I'd love to give you one. Otherwise, have a great Sunday.